Hi, my name is Darlena Liu, and you're listening to Doctors Who Create. We're continuing our Spotlight series in collaboration with the Master Scholars Program in Humanistic Medicine at the NYU School of Medicine. People often talk about the art of medicine, but today we'll be quite literally talking about the art and the artists of medicine. First, we'll be talking with Dr. Mike Natter, who you may know from his artwork on Instagram and other platforms. Then we'll hear more about a project to paint the walls of a waiting room in Bellevue Hospital in coordination with the NYU chapter of the Gold Humanism Honor Society. And lastly, I interviewed Laura Ferguson, who teaches an art and anatomy course that's offered at the NYU School of Medicine through the Master Scholars Program. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as we paint a picture of just what the synergy between art and medicine really is. So I'm Mike. I'm from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I went to uh, Skidmore College for undergrad where I studied art. I then did a postback program at Columbia. I worked for a couple years and then went to Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia. Um, and I've been utilizing art essentially to help me learn, teach, and retain medicine. Um, and then I was lucky enough to go to or to get into NYU for residency. I'm currently a second year internal medicine resident at NYU. And I hope to do a fellowship in endocrinology. How did that initial spark of art enter your life? So it's funny. I think it's the, the better question is the other way around. How did medicine enter my life? Because art has always been a part of my life. I grew up with this innate sense of always drawing and always wanting to see things visually. And I actually think that we all do. I think all of us grew up drawing. I think everyone was coloring. Everyone had that innate kind of intuitive sense to do so. Visual imagery is essentially a a language that we're all inherently fluent in but then something happens in our society where it kind of gets beaten out of us where it's not as valued as math and science and other things that are looked at more seriously I also think that people become more conscious of what others think of them and so if maybe their art is not as good um, or accepted as good then they're less likely to want to continue because they become you know embarrassed by that medicine um, came became interesting to me also kind of early on in life, around nine or 10 years old, um, when I was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And so I became very interested in the kind of elegant pathophysiology of diabetes. And it was something that my body previously was doing on its own to balance the delicate, you know, hormonal reactions of glucose and metabolism and insulin. And now all of a sudden it's thrust onto my nine-year-old shoulders to have to do something that was very complicated. Um, and so I became kind of fascinated by that. So I always thought medicine was interesting, uh, but I was terrible at math and science. And so I kind of stuck in the art world for some time. And it wasn't until I was at the tail end of my college career when I realized that I kind of had the epiphany of, I want to be a doctor. I want to do it. I want to see if I can do it. And so I went for it. Almost all of the art that I've created throughout my post-bac and medical school years um, kind of inherently ties together um, the synergy of art and medicine because I was very much harnessing what came naturally to me, a language that I knew very well, which was to draw, and then kind of utilizing it to um, translate the complex medical language into something that I could then understand. It sounds like the art and medicine has been really intertwined from the beginning. Are there certain pieces that you've made that really highlight this? There was one that always stuck out 
which I thought really embodied kind of what I was after in my art and medical kind of combination, which was a piece I did. Um, it was a self-portrait that I made out of uh, used uh, glucose test strips. So I had collected a bunch of test strips. So as a diabetic, I was testing my blood sugar up to 10, 12 times a day. And I always wondered, um, you know, not only are they very expensive test strips, they're like a dollar a strip, you know, if you don't have insurance. And I always thought about that. And there's so much medical waste that happens and accumulates. And I thought it'd be interesting to kind of collect those strips and then maybe utilize them in some way. So I had this huge collection of test strips for, for probably a few years. And I had no idea how I was going to use them. And then in medical school, I found some free time, surprisingly. And I said, let me see what I can do with these. And the idea came to me to make a self-portrait and in that way, when you are very close to the self-portrait, you really only see the test strips. And so there's that kind of microcosm of the diabetes that kind of is very much a part of my daily life. But then as you pull back and from a, a farther perspective, you really kind of only see my face. And so that's the macrocosm of that I'm more than just my diabetes. And so I thought that was an interesting way to combine the two. And it's hanging actually in an endocrinology, pediatric endocrinology clinic in Canada which is um, amazing, like uh, something that I never in my wildest dreams would have imagined. I thought this was just going to be kind of on my refrigerator. Um, and now it's actually being seen by kids who have my disease, and I think it's pretty cool. It seems like your art has really grown so much. Was that your intention going into it? No, <laughs> not, not at all. It's been, it's been a whirlwind. It's been really flattering and amazing and something I could never have predicted. I. It's funny because... In art school, like in, at, when I went to undergrad, I felt like an imposter because everyone around me in my art courses were really talented and far beyond anything skill level that I was at. And then when I went to medical school, I felt like an imposter because I was an art kid and everyone was smarter than me with math and science and medicine. And so I, I felt like I never really belonged. And so never in either path did I feel like I was going to kind of stand out for anything that I was doing. So this kind of happened very naturally and organically. Um, and it's been something that's been really helpful for me for not only my confidence, but also I think a lot of us in medicine share this kind of sense of inadequacy. And I think it's unfortunate that no one feels comfortable kind of expressing that because the culture is that everyone next to you is better. Um, so I kind of like the idea of wearing my shortcomings on my sleeve. And I think that's been helpful for me, but also people that seem to have followed my art. It seems like it has this dual purpose in having an avenue for you to express these feelings and also to educate others. How do you balance those two goals? Those two goals kind of came out on their own. I had no intention of like selling my work or making prints of my work or anything like that. It was more how can I learn the, you know, the um, Krebs cycle or how can I learn, you know, the pathophysiology of Graves disease. And so the way that I knew how to learn was to draw it and to make visual kind of uh, connections to it. Initially, kind of was posting my work online as to create a repository for myself to refer back to. Uh, but the way that social media works is that everyone can see it. And so then it kind of took on a life of its own where people were actually getting use out of it. But then you hit on a point that I think is also really key is that kind of venting and finding an avenue for expressing other things. And so I feel like my art kind of falls into a number of buckets, and one of them for sure is coping with, um, which I'm sure you're starting to experience now in your clinical years, the more emotional sides of what we do and see and endure from the perspective of being a medical student and feeling like there's always someone else above you that you need that will always know more than you or that you need to impress or prove your knowledge to. 
to being a resident where you have to deliver terrible news to people and see death and dying and really awful things. And so, you know, what I term what we do on a daily basis is a collection of micro traumas because even things that aren't in the moment um, traumatic or awful seeming, you know, to anyone else not in medicine is pretty heavy. So those things kind of start adding up and they can build up. And I don't think if you acknowledge them in some way and have kind of a pressure valve to relieve that, then they can be pretty detrimental and kind of lead toward burnout and other things. Do you have an example of a specific patient or incident that comes to mind? Oh man, there's, there's, uh, there's many. Um, uh, we had a young patient who um, I had to tell, we got, I got very close with and I had to tell that he had um, cancer and so it was really tough. And it was a bad, it was a bad prognosis. And so um, I actually ended up drawing um, kind of basically like a graphic novel uh, form about that just to express kind of what that was like. Um, I wanted to kind of crystallize that moment um, and kind of show the emotion, but I also didn't want to, um, you know, it's difficult also because I, I never want to use my patient's suffering um, to like advance my artistic, uh, stra- um, you know, goals or anything like that. You know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a difficult balance to strike, but I also do want to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit for people that maybe aren't in medicine. It does seem like a really powerful tool in that instance to convey those things to your patient. So graphic medicine, I think, is a phenomenal tool because graphic medicine is kind of this idea of uh, graphic novels or comic book type uh, storytelling um, to tell the stories of medicine. And, you know, writing is very powerful and drawing is very powerful. But when you take the two together, um, graphic novels can harness a language that evokes emotions that I don't think can, you can have in any other genre. And so I think they, that really lends itself to expressing and showing what we go through in medicine and from a patient's perspective and a, and a physician's perspective. So one is if you're utilizing it as a didactic tool, which is what I kind of started doing, there's something to be said about the process and not the product. So people that don't deem themselves artists or don't have the skill uh, but think they would benefit from drawing out their notes you can literally ball up the paper and throw it out at the end of the day because the process you took in your mind to create that visual image is what's going to stick and help you remember and retain and retrieve the information. So I'm a big proponent of doing that. The idea of, of the warrior who unstrings his bow is important. So you need to kind of uh, decompress and um, you know, kind of process those micro traumas every day. Um, or even if it's not a micro trauma, maybe you're in, in the medical school, um, you know, first or second year, and you're learning all this material. Your brain needs a way of processing all that material and kind of storing it. And so I think if you go and take an hour and you dance, or you, you know, create a podcast, or you write a poem that has nothing to do with medicine, um, your brain is then I think better able to process what you learned. And so it sounds like what you're saying is that it's important to have that creative outlet, whether that be art or something else. Absolutely, yeah. How have you introduced art to colleagues or students you've worked with, and how have you seen them react to that? Yeah, it's usually a really positive response because I think it's a little bit, unfortunately, it's, it's very different. I, I do make it a point, like I love working with medical students, but I, I really enjoy breaking um, complex pathophysiology down to that of a child's understanding. Um, because I think if you can teach it at that level, then you really understand it. I've given out kind of handouts of my work that I've done previously to, to students, or I've drawn things on the board, um, and I, I'm a big proponent of doing that in the moment. So if we have a patient 
right there in front of us, um, I think it's important to kind of uh, hang those facts on a real person, a real story, um, instead of kind of arbitrarily or um, kind of abstractly talking about a topic that you can't tie to a particular patient. Is that some of the ideology behind your Rudin Fellowship Project and creating this database for students and other people to draw upon with so the Rudin Fellowship was, I, I actually initially approached them about doing, um, making my own kind of didactic illustrative book. And um, we weren't really kind of able to find the right fit for that within the Rudin Fellowship, but they did need someone to help with the LIDNA database. It is essentially this humongous online database of anything and everything that has an overlap between the arts and medicine. So I was able to basically kind of read different books and look at different graphic novels and different artistic pieces um, and then write a little annotation about them and then add them up and upload them up to the database. So it's been a lot of fun. Is that other book idea still a work in progress? Yes. So that I'm doing uh, kind of entirely on my own time. Um, and it's been a, a slow drag, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's been great. And I've, I've enlisted a couple of my, my colleagues, my, my co-residents who are um, brilliant and just amazing to help me kind of write more of the text part, uh, but the, the goal is to create a um, mostly visual-based kind of internal medicine, like bread and butter book that if you have an admission and you're in the elevator going down to the ED to pick up the admission, you can kind of flip the book out and go to the page and kind of recall the pathophys, the diagnosis, the, you know, the treatment, the plan, the management, that kind of stuff. In a similar style to the pieces that you've posted before? So yes and no. So um, it seems like my my style has like a handful of um, different ways it goes. So I think I, I always put it into three buckets. So there's there's like the very kind of uh, traditional fine art you know style that I have where it would be very kind of like well rendered and um, kind of like uh, hatched and and to make it look realistic and so on. And then there's the more like cartoony kind of comic style. Um, and then there's like this other thing that kind of falls somewhere in between the two. So my goal is to make it, I think, a little bit more in the, in the kind of in the way of netter almost, to make these really well-rendered illustrations, um, but that also have a comic-like component to them where you can um, closely, like basically looking at the image alone without very much or any text, pick up exactly what you need to pick up and then retain it and have a way of visually remembering that. So a netter plus natter. A netter plus natter, exactly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing all of this. Do you have any words of advice for medical students and what to keep in mind during this part of their training? There's starting to be a cultural shift in the paradigm. Um, I think a lot of medical schools, I, sh I don't know for sure, but I, I think I've heard things in the pipeline where they're kind of readdressing how they assess medical students for application processes and the way they interview them and those types of things. I think they're trying to get away from the very, like, rigid uh, pre-med curriculum stuff, I, I think. Um, I know there are some programs, I think Sinai had a program, like a medical humanities program, where you could um, like forego basically the MCAT or pre-med courses and you could still get in and things like that. And my alma mater, Jefferson, um, is really big on um, arts and humanities. And I think they're starting to value that more and more. Um, so I mean, I'm hopeful that, that that'll be part of it, but it, it has to be a top-down change. I think if you have a little change here and there from the bottom, it won't be enough of a ripple effect. I think you need a more systemic change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I definitely think it's promising seeing all these new programs, seeing how strong medical humanities is here and elsewhere. It's a good sign. I, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. I think it's going in the right direction.
Great. Thank you so much again. Thank you for having me. Keep listening, though. We have more for you this episode. Next, we're going to be talking about the Bellevue Mural Project. Students from the NYU Gold Humanism Honor Society came together to paint the coronary care unit waiting room. And the painting itself is inspired by the work of Frank Stella. It's very colorful and geometric. Fortunately, I had an opportunity to witness this painting in action, so I'll take you to the scene. First, I spoke with Dr. Michael Tanner, a physician at Bellevue who runs the Gold Humanism Honor Society at NYU and is also part of the Master Scholars Program in Humanistic Medicine. The thing we're doing uh, today, this is day one of our second project. It's a great way to collaborate. You can do it, actually we do it in uh, four days, uh, two weekends, and so that's a nice amount of time. You can sort of get it started the first weekend, think about it during the week, and then finish it. And uh, it, well, last year's project was really fun. So that was very successful. And uh, we're hoping this year's project turns out as well. I also had a chance to speak with the artist who designed the mural. Hi, I'm Rick Jordan. He's a decorative painter, muralist, and interior designer. Uh, we did a project last year in the palliative care waiting room. The theme was meant to be calm and soothing. And we used Saul LeWitt as an inspiration for these waves. Uh, very similar to what it's used in the San Francisco Museum lobby. This year, this room is much smaller and more uh, contained, so we wanted to do something a little more upbeat. What I found was uh, some of the shapes of Frank Stella's Protractor series could be adapted discreetly in the shape of hearts. Today is the first day, which is always fun because you get to learn everyone's skill sets and uh, where the, the doctors-to-be are, are coming from. Speaking of doctors-to-be... Hi, I'm Samantha Naneokara. I'm a fourth-year medical student at NYU. Over the past four years, I've spent so much time at Bellevue, but it's mostly been in patient rooms or in call rooms. It's never really been in waiting rooms. And when you're in a waiting room like we are now, when we're painting it and you look at the walls and it feels so barren, and I can't imagine being in the position where, especially if my loved one was in the cardiac care unit, if they had just had a heart attack or some other major cardiac procedure, <laughs> and we don't really spend a lot of time in the rooms that families wait in, so waiting rooms. And I can only imagine being the family member of somebody who is in the cardiac care unit, so they had a major heart attack or some other major cardiac procedure, and they're sitting in these rooms, they're barren, they're waiting for news about one of their loved ones, they're hoping that they're getting better. I think it just feels like a very barren space, and so I think this is a nice way to care for their families as well. I've painted before, but nothing like the design that Rick has planned for us, which looks really beautiful. And it is a really beautiful painting. I can attest to that. Some other ways that NYU medical students can engage with art during their time here is through the Art and Anatomy Humanistic Medicine Seminar. I took this class when I was in my first year of medical school before I even started anatomy, and I thought it was a great introduction to the space and a great combination of both art and medicine. So I took the time to interview Laura Ferguson, who teaches that class. She is the artist in residence, sponsored and supported by the Master Scholars Program in Humanistic Medicine at the NYU School of Medicine. And I teach art and anatomy, which is an anatomy drawing seminar. How did you get started with this art and anatomy class? How did it come together? It was actually my idea. I had been drawing my own anatomy. I'd gotten interested in anatomy and drawing my own anatomy for many years, which all started because of my own scoliosis. 
and I wanted to be able to visualize what was going on with my curving spine. And it was very hard to find any images, and all the images that I did find were you know, super medical, and they were all were showing surgeries, and they were kind of very ugly. They were showing it as this pathology, deformity. But it's the body I live in, you know, so I wanted to be able to visualize it in a way that was more fit in with how I felt about myself. And I think even, you know, like my doctor's appointments and getting x-rayed a lot um, always made me feel kind of distant from what was going on inside my body and, you know, not feeling seen by doctors, but just being seen as my x-rays. So that's what really got me interested, and I started this years-long project of drawing my own anatomy based on medical images of myself. So I started meeting doctors that way to get the medical images made, and gradually I started to have a different, more interesting kind of relationship with doctors, you know, as an artist rather than as a patient. And eventually, you know, as I would show my work, I would get a lot of interesting responses from either people with different anatomies who were so thrilled to see a different kind of anatomy portrayed, and also with doctors who sometimes told me that it you know, gave them insights and how it felt in living in a body that was different. Or so I began to feel like maybe I could play a role in getting doctors to think a little differently about unusual anatomies like mine and also just to use drawing as a way of learning anatomy. I thought that would be, you know, I had basically learned anatomy myself by drawing it, and I thought I could maybe teach that to medical students and give them a different kind of experience of. What resources did you use to learn it? Um, I studied anatomy with, um, I started going, you know, for, you know, just to help me with my scoliosis issues, I started going to a neuromuscular trainer who was actually a very expert anatomist and a dance anatomist who teaches anatomy to dancers at Juilliard and other places. Her name is Irene Dowd, and um, she likes to draw also. So when she saw that I was getting so seriously interested, she invited me to come and draw from her skeleton, and we used to have these sessions like life drawing, except it was skeleton drawing, and we would get together every week and pose her skeleton and draw. And so I learned a lot of anatomy from her, and it was all, you know, very movement-based and very much about, um, you know, kind of different. It wasn't about, I think the way med students learn anatomy, it's very based on normal versus abnormal, and just memorizing everything, you know, whereas the way I learned it was very movement-oriented and, you know, functional and relating to how people move around in the world and thinking about anatomy. From taking your class, I definitely felt like you were able to incorporate a lot of the movement into the art and anatomy curriculum. That's great. I like to hear that. Um, can you talk a little bit about what um, what was in your mind when you were trying to create the curriculum for art and anatomy? I know we start off drawing the hand. The hand is so accessible. You know, you can see your own hand, and you can really just see or feel you know, all the anatomy right under the surface. You can feel your own bones, and you know the muscles are right on top of them and you can see the tendons and you know it's so accessible and also like the hand is how we draw and it's and I feel like drawing is kind of like your body expressing itself and it comes through the hand you know so it's perfect thing to draw for that reason and I just think like if you're drawing anatomy I, I have a feeling pro I've never been a med student but I think you probably can't help but think about your own body as you're learning anatomy and that's a good thing, you know, and if you draw your own hand, very specifically your own hand, you know, then you're going to think about your own anatomy and just, you know, relate in a different way to what's inside you. And that can be the beginning of thinking about other parts of the anatomy, you know, the same way, side by side, and maybe share some experiences like that that are very different. I know one time we have um, models, live models come in in the class and do different poses and move around. Right, right. Can you talk a little bit more about that experience? Yeah. So that's something, it's all of these things have sort of evolved over the years, and I think um, 
when Hurricane Sandy flooded the anatomy lab in 2012, <laughs> we had to move our class and we didn't have access to the cadavers. I got the idea of let's have live models come in and then it just seemed like such a perfect idea. Why didn't I think of that before? Because obviously we want to relate the anatomy to the living body and that's a great way to do it. And we, you know, we've, I've gotten to know some models that are comfortable posing here and they'll even pose, you know, like with, like side by side with a skeleton or even a cadaver so we can get a chance to look at the living body and then really visualize the anatomy right next to it. Definitely. It's a great introduction, I think, to anatomy that way. And I enjoyed that I had a chance to take your class before I even started anatomy lab as a medical student in my first year. Um, how do you see the transformation in your students as they first come into your class and then over time as they gain more comfort and familiarity working with cadavers? When I first started 10, 11 years ago, med students spent a whole year just doing anatomy. After a few years, it was already cut down to one semester, and then it was cut down to, you know, sort of a few weeks here and a few weeks there over a period of a year and a half or so. For the first time, like, med students were coming to my class before they started anatomy. Um, dissection doesn't start until after, around Thanksgiving time, and my class would start at the end of September. So I was the one who was basically introducing them to the cadavers. I thought it was a very beautiful introduction. That's great. That's great to know. You know, I think this kind of goes back to when I, w I actually had surgery for my scoliosis when I was 13, and I had to, at that time, they weren't using metal rods, so I just had to be in a huge body cast for a year because they just did bone grafts, and, you know, it took that long for the bone to all knit back together, you know. And as you can imagine, I mean, just being put into it, you know, you're perfectly healthy one minute and walking around and everything, and then the next day you're in this huge plaster cast and you can't stand up or sit up, and, you know, you're kind of have to depend on other people for all the basics of life, and um, it's pretty horrible. But, you know, none of the doctors ever acknowledged that. They never said, you know, we're sorry, we have to do this to you. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that if it happened to you for anything other than a medical reason, it would be a kind of punishment or torture or something, you know, to be immobilized that way. But obviously it was necessary, you know, for my health. And I think that whole dichotomy of, you know, sometimes having to hurt people in order to heal them, it just seems like it's better to kind of acknowledge that, and that's kind of how it starts out with dissecting a cadaver and drawing. You know, you can have the good and the bad together. You can have beauty and pain together. You can have hurting and healing together. It's fine, you know. It's one of the great places where you can have things together without having to, you know, it's not linear. You don't have to do first one and then the other, but it's just all kind of mixed together, and different people are going to respond to it in different ways, that's you know, really to the drawings point. or something. So it seems like kind of a perfect way to express some of those difficult kind of emotions. And, and I think, you know, I've had students who really wanted to talk about that with me, but, but they just appreciate the chance to just come and draw, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've had lots, I have lots of beginners. Um, a lot of people will come and say, like, oh, I used to love to draw, but I haven't done it in years, and, you know, I really miss it, but I never have time. So those people really oftentimes can draw really well, and they just don't realize it because they haven't done it for a long time, you know. And then occasionally there were just some brilliant artists who were just so fantastic. And I didn't realize until I came here, you know, how many, I mean, you, I think everyone always thinks of art and science being so far apart. And you wouldn't imagine that there would be lots of med students who told me they tried to decide between going to art school or medical school. I was just amazed the first time I heard that, you know, that a lot of people with artistic talent seem to end up in medical school too, you know. So it's really great to be able to, for them to have a way to utilize, you know, different sides of their you know, different skills that they have and different ways of looking at the world. And I think for some, it might be a way of being able to, like if they come from an artistic family who's amazed that they went to medical school, it's a way of 
their families being able to relate to what they do or their friends, you know. So much of the visuals of anatomy is medical illustration and very, you know, where it's always like very generic, like the typical male, the typical female, usually shown, you know, anterior, posterior, or lateral view, you know. And so to just to be able to see anatomy, I mean, all these people came to the anatomy lab and drew basically the same things, but each one seeing it completely differently. And, you know, 20 different people drew a hand skeleton, but all their drawings are different, or drew the heart, and all their drawings are different, you know. And I just love seeing what they do. You know, for a lot of people, it's really eye-opening because, you know, it's just such an easier way to relate to anatomy. Art, it seems, can be a powerful tool in medicine for learning, for teaching, and for expressing oneself. And that's all we got for this episode of Doctors Who Create. Hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review. We would love to hear from you. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at doctorswhocreate at gmail.com. Or tweet us at doctorscreate. Or check out our website, doctorswhocreate.com, to listen to our podcast episodes and also to check out other articles and profiles of physicians who are creative. Intro music brought to you by the band Night Float.